Well, we certainly appreciated Brother Williams' ministry to us. It's good to have him and his dear wife with us. And again, avail yourself of the book table. It's good materials back there. So, Brother, you come and preach to us. And this water is for you. Uh, I'm what you call a doddering geriatric. <laughs> Thank you for that nice lunch. Appreciated that. Appreciated the fellowship. It's been a blessing to worship the Lord with you today. Turn, if you would, please, to chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8, <clears throat> where, Lord willing, we will cover verses 1 through 19. 1 through 19. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the communion of saints, the joy of worshiping our great God with one voice and one soul and one spirit. Thank thee for the good things to eat today, Lord, for fellowshipping with other believers. Lord, it's, it's a joy. We thank thee for it all. And now, Lord, as we turn once again to the sacred text, be our teacher. Open the scriptures, Lord. The Lord Jesus said the scriptures were closed, so open them for us, Lord, that we might understand and then live and act accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Noah and his family have been incarcerated now in a rudderless box, <laughs> but I think they were grateful. Can you imagine them? reliving the shrieks and the cries of their neighbors outside the vessel and they realize they're still alive because they heeded the voice of God. They float along with all the representative species of the animals on a shoreless ocean, rejoicing in their deliverance, pondering the death of their, not only their neighbors, but relatives we're not told about Noah's parents, if they were still living, or her parents. We're not told of uncles and cousins and so forth, but one would believe they had a number of relatives that didn't listen to the message either. Far below them in unfathomed depths was a judged world. And corpses of billions, with a B, billions of animals and men have been drowned and buried while Countless others are bloated and floating on the surface of the water. So it's a dead and buried world over which their craft is floating. And relative silence and the lapping of the waves against the side of their vessel, where once there was a planet teeming with abundant life. Noah can't help himself, but God remembers his covenant. And the earth is once again prepared for habitation, never again to be judged by water. The next judgment is fire. Divine justice and judgment with their righteous demands have been met. And offended holiness has now been propitiated. Remember that? Satisfied. Satisfied. 
So a tiny remnant remains as the progenitors of the post-Diluvian world. Now, I don't know if you remember this on your own Bible study, but our Lord did an interesting thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18, 19, and 20. This would be four and a half millennia later from the ark. But a resurrected Christ does a fascinating thing. But quickened by the Spirit, by which he also went and preached unto the spirits in prison, that's Hades, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. You know, I don't know about you, but I, after studying the Bible all these years, I have a fresh appreciation for the concept of few as opposed to many or straight gate. After his death and resurrection, he descended into Hades. Now, don't misunderstand this. This was not a second chance for these people, or their souls now. Christ preached his victory over sin, and he justified the fact that these spirits were in prison. That God will give grace to stand alone against trillions when you stand for God's truth. And that's a comfort. Ocean basins are now depressed and widened. First we see the action of the Lord, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8. The Lord's first action is remembering. God remembered Noah. Judgment has been very specific it's been very discriminatory this is anthropomorphic language here god hadn't forgotten anything if he did he'd no longer be god but this is figurative language also special attention and special care that he gives to his own like the thief on the cross at first that thief on the cross railed against our lord but then he had second thoughts said, remember me, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom today. You'll be with me in paradise. There was an old vet in our, our town. He took care of the mules for the army in World War II. That's where he met his wife. She was an army nurse. And every time I'd go in there, I'd start to share the Lord with him, Dr. Clark. As soon as I'd open my mouth about the Lord, Mabel, he'd call Mabel and he'd leave. Every single time. I'd start to mention the he'd, Mabel. <laughs> well, then I heard he was in the hospital. Captive audience. So I went up to see him and I said, Dr. Clark, you know enough about medicine to know that you're dying. <laughs> And I told him about the thief on the cross. And that old barman, he, he got saved that day. In fact, the next person that visited him, I just got saved. <laughs> it was such a joy. And I think he died the next day. 
like, like the thief on the cross, you know, just in the yawning jaws of death, but just before he entered, he, he got saved. Well, how did the Lord remember? It says here, he made a wind. This is that Hebrew word ruach, which is the word for wind or spirit. This was a supernatural wind, a beating, drying wind. And now for the first time, prevailing winds have taken place. There were no prevailing winds when it was a vapor canopy. But now with temperature differentials all over the globe, there was prevailing winds. Winds would have been quite robust because there was nothing but a shoreless ocean. No mountains or barriers to slow their velocity. Ocean basins are now depressed and widened, whereas the mountains were pushed up along with continental land masses, lots of tectonic activity, lots of volcanic activity, rearranging the land masses. And it says here in verse 1, the waters assuaged. There's a good old-fashioned word that means they subsided. The waters didn't disappear immediately, but by degrees. They settled down and were depressed by providential second causes. You'll remember when the Lord created in Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, it was immediate. It was by fiat power. He created everything. But now he's doing this through second causes. It took 150 days to create the flood and now 261 days for it to assuage. The Lord not only remembered in verse 1, but in verse 2 he's restraining. God stopped all those subterranean aquifers, all those artesian wells. No more torrents of water coming from underneath the surface of the earth. Volcanic activity probably continued for years after this. The vapor canopy had now completely collapsed, and now they could see the sun, the moon, the stars with clarity. The rain was stopped. It was a silent, shoreless ocean on which they floated. And now they saw all these heavenly constellations. That must have been fascinating to them. So the Lord was remembering, restraining. Verse 3, he's returning. The waters returned, literally walking and returning. It was gradual and constant progression, continually. The earth wasn't inundated in a day, nor was it dried in a day. In creation week, one day's work saw vast earth spaces cleared of water, verses 9 through 10 of chapter 1. But now, however, God uses the second cause, as we mentioned. God often works our deliverances gradually, that the day of small things would not be despised. After the end of 150 days, he says here, the same period as referred to in chapter 7 and verse 24, all over our present world, interior lakes and seas show evidences of much higher water levels in the past, some of which have marine fossils at higher altitudes. Now, how can this be? <laughs> I know. Flying fish. <laughs> Rivers were carrying larger quantities of water and sediments. Now he's not only returning, but verse 4, he's resting. The ark rested. The waters were now relatively calm and tranquil, so it settled to the earth. 
God has places of rest for his pilgrims. And as each one of us goes through our own personal tribulations and cares and tears and heartaches and valleys, right around the corner there's an Elam in the wilderness for you with wells and palm trees. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, according to verse 4, this was the seventh month of the year, not of the flood. The flood was now the in the fifth month, or 150 days. Now, if the flood began in Marchesvan, which would be the second month of the civil year, that's a Jewish month, that'd be our November, if you remember, then it was on the 17th day of Abib that the ark rested. Now, take my word for it, that is a memorable date. Not only was that the date the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, but that's the very day the Israelites passed over the Red Sea, which is the type and figure of salvation. Hold on to your seatbelts. This is the day our Lord rose from the dead. Must be accidental, surely. (laughs) No, no. The Lord does things providential. All three of these incidents were victories over death and judgment. Here on the mountains of Ararat, present-day Ararat is about 17,000 feet above sea level. And the ark rested on those mountains 74 days after the end of 150 days. Now, if this were a so-called local flood, which our Ph.D. geologist friends insist that it was, How could the ark have landed on a mountain range at several thousand feet of altitude? Ararat is composed of much pillow lava. That's very unique lava. It's made, it's a very dense lava rock made under great depths of water. So the Ararat mountains contain many sedimentary formations with marine fossils entombed in them at such great altitudes. That's a quandary for our PhD friends. Verse 5, revealing. 74 days later, the tops of the mountains were revealed. These were probably the highlands of present-day Armenia, three to 4,000 feet above sea level. The waters have been ebbing away now for 10 weeks, about four and a half inches per day. It, it ebbed slowly, more slowly than it accumulated. They accumulated, remember, six inches a minute. Now we see the actions of Noah, verses 6 through 14. Verse 6, Noah opened the window. Noah and his family have now been in close fellowship for 300 days. With all the noises and the malodorous miasma of all those animal groups down in the, inside the vessel, all the representative animals of the world. And I can just imagine those feminine noses were getting quite quarrelsome about that. Now, this is part of the human condition. He'd been listening to his family's complaints about all those animals and how they stunk. The cramped quarters and the malodorous, oh, I can just just hear it, can't you? In every family, this kind of thing goes on. At the end of 40 days, he waited until he had a plain path. He wasn't impatient. He wasn't in a rush. Why? Because 
God's not in a rush. So what does he do? Verse 7 through 12, Noah sent birds. He decides to send out spies to spy out the land. And so to do so, he takes up bird watching. Now he sent forth a raven. Now, right away, you probably understand what that is, or maybe you don't. I don't know, depending on what you know about birds. But uh, a raven looks very much like our crow, except it's larger. It has a different call, but they have a similar diet. They live on carrion, roadkill, (laughs) which in August is really ripe. And so the raven is a picture of the lost soul. Up in Alaska, they call ravens dumpster ducks. And if you're out in the woods up in Alaska, you can hear them call. It's a very distinct call that the raven has. And the raven rejects the ark of safety. For my freedom to do as I wish. To me, the raven represents the millennial. You know, that young adult. As the, now, praise the Lord, you have some millennials here. And praise God for you. You're right here in church where you belong. But so many have left their churches that were Bible-believing churches. Because it's rules, chains on my personality. I don't like that. And so they leave to satisfy my fleshly, carnal appetites. So the dove is next, but uh, the raven at first, he's pure black. He's got this disgusting diet that I just told you about. He has no compunction about landing on a slimy surface. In fact, if it's crawling with maggots, that's his confections. That's his salt and pepper as far as he's concerned. So he, he, now, a turkey vulture has a similar diet. You're probably familiar with a turkey vulture. They're very common. Now, just as an aside here, may I warn you, don't ever sneak up on a turkey vulture. They have a secret weapon. They do? Yes, they do. If you were to startle and surprise a turkey vulture. They can disgorge the evil contents of their stomach with great accuracy up to several yards. So unless you want to be covered with the contents of their stomach, don't surprise a turkey vulture. (laughs) So the raven goes forth to and fro, going and returning, And Edgar Allan Poe, notwithstanding, I doubt that he said, nevermore. (laughs) It did not re-enter the ark, as did the dove. But he's, like I said, the picture of the lost soul. Now, the dove is like many other professing Christians. She's out flying around, and she's she's reveling at her newfound freedom, totally unaware of the dangers outside the ark of safety. So she flies gaily into the open spaces, eager to cast off the chains and rules of my mom and dad. And then, oh, Psalm 55. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. Though then I could wander off and remain in the wilderness. But the dove could find no rest away from Noah. 
whereas the raven could care less. And the dove uh, is very faithful to her mate. And they won't land on just any surface. It has to be clean, thank you. And so the dove is a picture of the, the saved person. But she finally returns, finding rest again in Noah's outstretched arms. And she discovers a truth the millennial hasn't discovered yet. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Noah sent the raven to see if the water had abated. There was an abundance of sodden, rotting bodies. So this raven would have been feasting and having a wonderful time. And if he could talk, he would have said to Noah, this is a golden corral out here. Then the dove, of course, he sent, as I told you. They're, they're, now, they're a clean bird. They're very meek. And mild. Now, if you've ever go, gone dove hunting and you've brought some doves back, I admire your marksmanship because they have a very erratic flight. And <clears throat> if you can bring some doves back home, you're, you're a pretty good shot. But they're a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And they rest only on dry places, eat only grain and vegetable matter. And I like this part. He's tenderly attached to his mate. I like that part. It wouldn't alight on these unclean surfaces, and so she or he returns to the ark. Verse 10, he waits another seven days. The dove was sent out seven days after the raven, and he waited seven days between each sending. Now, have you picked up on something? He had no calendar, but he was observing a hebdomadal week again, seven-day week. He was possibly observing the weekly Sabbath, Shabbat, which is a word which means rest, so if you get a good old Baptist nap, you're observing Shabbat. Incidents that mark the abatement of the flood are marked by seven-day weekly intervals. Entrance in the ark was measured by a single week until the flood came. So the Sabbath was a very primitive, early-on institution, and its observance and sanctification were no doubt observed on the ark. It was part of the creation ordinance. Verse 11, Noah knew. What did he know? The waters were sufficiently gone so that olive shoots were coming because, remember, the dove came back with an olive shoot. Olive trees are lower than other trees, and so he knew the water was low or maybe even gone altogether. So what does he do with that, that intelligence? Verse 12, he stayed, probably to the great consternation of the ladies in the family. And even though he knew the waters were gone, he didn't leave the ark. God had shut him in. God had to take him out, as far as he's thinking. Now, by the way, 1 Corinthians 7 is an illustration of that in our New Testament. If, but be content with what you're doing. Be, be content where you are. If you're a welder and you get saved, now you're a saved welder. If you're a plumber and you get saved, now you're a saved plumber. Don't do radical things once you get Just stay right where you are until the Lord moves you. But Noah waited. This is now the 601st year of Noah's life. He's not going to leave without the Lord's leading. And I, I like this about Noah. Israel would only move when the pillar of the cloud or the fire moved. So Noah waited. Now that's difficult for human beings to wait. But that's what he did. This was a joyous new year, the first day, the first month. Noah removed the covering. That's a reference to the skins on the tabernacle. Noah removed the roofing on the ark and he found the waters were dried up. 
The significance of that verb, burn up. The earth was dry from heat, but it was saturated. Second month, 27th day. No one his family now been in the ark 371 days or 53 weeks. I'm sure the ladies are saying, it's been 10 years, I think it is. But the earth was dried up. Verses 15 through 17, here's the admonition of the Lord. God spoke, he spake. Verse 15, the post-diluvian race began like the antediluvian race with God's blessing. The waiting servant receives his orders. What are the orders? Excuse me, verse 16. Go forth. He was required to wait for two months after he saw the ground was dry. And probably there would be food now for food sources for he and the family and the the animals. So God takes care of our needs and our benefits, not necessarily our desires and our wants and our timetable. Noah didn't follow his desires. He didn't follow his curiosity. He waited on the Lord because the Lord is always on time. This command, go forth, was 57 days after he opened the window and released the raven. So God made him wait until the 27th day of the second month, even though he saw dry ground on the first day of the first month. Are you willing to wait on the Lord? I hope you are. Noah would not move without orders. God has said, come in, because he was inside also. Now he says, go forth. He was with him all the while. Noah was the greatest broker who ever lived. He floated his stock for an entire year. In fact, did you know that there was a rooster on board that crowed so loudly that day that every soul on planet Earth heard him. (laughs) You don't have to laugh at my corny jokes. (laughs) Noah had given up the earth for the Lord's sake, and now he reclaimed it a hundredfold. Whatever you give up for the Lord's sake, he will repay. Verse 17, bring forth. The earth into which Noah now entered was radically transformed from the earth that he left. The landscape was strewn with rotting corpses, innumerable skeletons all over. No more teeming herds of animals and hordes of people. The lush vegetation was gone, and the land was barren, although signs of life were there. There were larger, deeper, more expansive oceans. Continents were smaller and habitable land spaces were smaller. We have to understand that the Lord's tectonic activity continued. In fact, I was listening to a Christian PhD geologist and he explained that the India subduction zone was responsible for the Himalayas. I thought that was fascinating. That pushed up against and it raises up these mountains. Harmful radiation from outer space could now reach the surface of the earth. The vapor canopy had collapsed. And so what happened because of that? Longevity radically decreased. No more 500-year-old human beings. Now maybe 70, 80, 90 years, maybe. Strong temperature differentials were now present instead of a tropical greenhouse atmosphere. Snow and ice began to build up in the Arctic regions. Violent winds, rain, storms were now possible. 
It was a less congenial world into which they entered. Volcanic and seismic activity was rampant because of an unstable crust of the earth and continued for several centuries, but not millions of years. Colossal glaciers and rivers and lakes existed for a time, and then the world only gradually approached the present state that it's in. Rugged mountain ranges were pushed up by violent changes in the earth's crust, mostly unfit for human habitation. Stiff, violent winds, dark clouds, foreboding weather. Animals were now fearful of man. The fear and the dread of man was now on all these animals. And now man could eat flesh. Whereas before, everybody and everything ate green things. Everyone was a vegan, I guess. Fossiliferous deposition occurred during the flood year, burying creatures according to where they lived and congregated and according to their ability to withstand the flood for a time and according to how fast they died. Now, if you didn't listen very carefully to what I just said, I have just repeated what Ph.D. geologists in the secular realm call the geological timetable that occurred from simple life forms to more complex over millions of years. I hope you don't believe that. The Bible calls them willingly ignorant. Willingly ignorant. They want to be ignorant. Because once they acknowledge the flood, they have to acknowledge the author of the flood to whom they are responsible. And they're not about willing to do that. And all of this happened in one year, making all these years of evolutionary science and tons of their literature fit for the dustbin. They cannot admit that, Futter, what happened in that year, because it destroys their faith system. And don't, believe, don't misunderstand, they have a faith system. It causes them to admit that there's not a living God who judges unbelief and sin. So there's death all around the landscape and buried by the billions under the surface, but there's no death on the ark. Verses 18 and 19, notice the obedience of Noah. Noah went forth, verse 18, he went first. He was the captain of the vessel. And his boys were right behind. If they were like my boys, they were pushing and shoving. And then came Noah's wife, and then the frightened and timid wives of Noah's sons, who universally were saying, oh, fresh air. <laughs> Verse 19, all the animals came forth. All the present-day animals and humans are descended from these ark passengers. And some of these creatures could not readily adapt to the radically changed earth and its hostile environment. For example, you don't see dinosaurs now. Nor do you see pteranodons or creodons or glyptodons, some of these Rather bizarre creatures that scientists can put together through their skeletons, but no one has seen a live one. Many extinctions took place during what we call the Ice Age in its sharp contrast and temperatures. Probably lasted several hundred or maybe even a thousand years, but not millions of years. The raven and the dove are symbols of spiritual truth. The raven is that fleshly and carnal heart of a lost soul. He loves this defiled, cursed, wicked world. He loves it. 
He feeds on that rottenness. He gladly leaves the ark and is satisfied with death. But the dove, by way of contrast, is the spiritual heart. And the vain and the weary wanderings of the soul are seen in the flight of the dove. Always seeking rest, but never satisfied, always disappointed. No peace or rest found in this world. She's got to return to the ark, that type of Christ. And a believer has two natures, do we not? We have the flesh and we have the spirit, John chapter 3 and verse 6. And there's that constant struggle between those two. And obviously it it makes a big difference upon which one we feed. (laughs) If you feed the flesh, guess what? You're going to be carnal. If you feed the spirit, it'll really help you to walk with God. But the new nature feeds on the things of the Lord. And we have to ask ourselves the question, which nature in my life do I allow to predominate? Mammoths proved the flood. Multitudes of woolly mammoths have been found in the frozen silt of the Arctic tundra all over northern Asia, north of Alaska, north in Canada. They are found in herds on higher ground, not, not in marshes. Hundreds of thousands of them drowned as they massed together on higher ground to escape the encroaching waters. And the farther north you go, the more you find. And their bones are mingled with the bones of saber-toothed tigers, giant elk, cave bear, musk ox, and other things. And there are no trees there today. You have to go a thousand miles south of where you find these bones to find vegetation because it's frozen tundra. These creatures couldn't have subsisted in that area if it were like, like it is now, barren and treeless area, harsh, frigid Arctic climates. And the food in their stomachs is pine, hawthorn, branches, green vegetation, which does not exist there today. In fact, not all that long ago, I remember reading this, a woolly mammoth calf was found in Siberia with soft tissue still evident. Now, what that means is, again, it it destroys their whole scheme because soft tissue cannot exist for millions of years. It'd be gone. But in this woolly mammoth calf, you can still see the red blood cells. So it was about 4,500 years ago, not millions and millions of years ago. They were buried alive with that green food. Mammoth ivory has been sold on the London docks for many, many years. In fact, when I've preached in Alaska, they have given me, and my my wife made me a man cave. I never had a man cave before. But I have a man cave now. I'm so proud of myself, I've got a man cave. But uh, they gave me the tip of a woolly mammoth tusk. And I have the tooth of a woolly mammoth adolescent animal. And I've always wanted something from the pre-flood world. And those are, my wife and I were staying at this church in their prophet's chamber between meetings. And they happened to have a, a VBS going on. And the speaker brought forth, it was all enclosed, you couldn't touch it, you couldn't get at it. But it was a, a brass bell with an iron clapper which had been encased in a humongous piece of coal in West Virginia. And this West Virginian, in order to use the coal in smaller pieces, dropped it on the ground to break it apart, and out falls this bell in the middle of that coal seam. 
That was from before the flood, my friends. And so I, no one was allowed to touch it, but you were allowed to see it. And there were artificers in brass and iron before the flood. One large mammoth head, if the tusk still intact, was sold with the original form still intact. So judgment by flood is a type and a figure of judgment by fire to come. The earth saved from water is reserved for fire. And so by baptism of both elements of water and fire, it will be purged before being inhabited by the Lord and his redeemed. The ark of safety prepared for you today is our Lord Jesus. And we're to be hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. God had not told Noah how long his incarceration on the ark would last. He may have been tempted to think after the months went by, maybe God's forgotten me, but he hadn't. Our afflictions might be grievous, our afflictions might be protracted, our afflictions might be long, but he has not forgotten. And notice Noah's patience, his hope, his trust. He trusted with this fond hope for a future, with his, even though his present looked pretty bleak. So the flood is a dramatic warning of judgment to come. Right now the tares and the wheat live together. But one day judgment will separate them. And the Lord will send his angels to separate out the false wheat from the true wheat and consign those to the flames. You and I are only gradually released from our troubles. Not always immediately. So if you, I don't know how long you've walked with the Lord, but waiting can become a sacred discipline for a believer. Don't lose patience. Fossils are a record of death, and these were deposited after the fall of Adam and after God's curse. Fossils are not a geological record of evolution, but of God's sovereign power and his judgment on sin. And modern computer studies have indicated that the geographical center of the Earth landmass is located within a short distance of Ararat. Some time ago, a whole group of people, 70 of them in number, were walking south along the western edge of the Mediterranean. And they were heading for Egypt. And uh, a local official among the Amorites came out and said, I'm the census guy here. Who are you people? We're Israelites. Oh, how many are you? We're 70. We're, we're a nation of 70 souls. Where are you going? We're going to Egypt. They were the tiniest of nations. And now uh, my one daughter-in-law is carrying our 70th grandchild. <laughs> when you caught up all my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, she's carrying number 70, so we qualify as being a nation. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19, we're told about the watchman on the wall. 
And the watchman had a very sacred duty. He had to watch for danger. Anything encroaching on the city wall, boy, he had to raise the alarm quick. Because if he did not, and people were killed or injured, he would pay with his life. However, if he raised the alarm and people got killed or injured, then it was their fault. And my friends, if I can conclude this way, you and I are watchmen on the wall. I hope each day as you leave the house, you have some tracks in your pocket. Because who knows who you're going to meet. The Lord might bring a prepared heart to you. And if you have a track, that's your ammunition. If you have a track, you can give them that track and talk to them about the Give them a good word about the Lord. Give them a good uh, report about the Lord. Who knows? The Lord might give you a prepared heart along your, your pilgrim way. So I hope you are taking your uh, task seriously as being a, a watchman on the wall. We have to warn people that danger is coming. 